0: Welcome to episode 24 of Turning the Goldfields Green. This is our last episode for this season, but never fear, we'll be back in one form or another in August. Today's topic is regenerative agriculture. The Mount Alexander Regenerative Agriculture Group has been running for a year now and has funding from the North Central Catchment Management Authority or CMA to complete a full three-year programme of education for local farmers and soil testing on their farms. But before we launch into this topic, I would like to acknowledge that the program and all of the farmers and farms we are talking about are on Jara Country, home of the Jajawarung. I would like to pay respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Salt,
1: salt, salt of the earth, salt, 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 grassroot, grassroot, grass. Grassroots. Grassroots. salt of the earth people, grassroots, grassroots change, salt grass.
0: Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. The majority of today's show is in conversation with Dean Belfield, a committee member of the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and the person who's been instrumental in setting up and coordinating the regenerative agriculture program. He himself runs a biodynamic farm near Bulmer and has been using the principles of regenerative agriculture on his own place for a few years now. Let's start with a little bit about you. Uh, What got you into agriculture and then specifically into regenerative agriculture?
2: Yeah, so I had the, I suppose I look at it now as the good fortune growing up on a farm in Western Victoria where we had. You know, that's the centre of the universe. Wherever you grow up, that's the way it is. Mm -hmm. And the farm that we lived on then, which was just north of a town called Harrow, where the Glenelg River runs through it, it's also the centre where they do the Farmer Meets a Wife, where that all started. Oh, really? Yeah, it's it's (laughs) a a lovely little valley, picturesque area. There's a lot of uh, native bush in the area, but it's also mainstream farming and on our farm we had about originally three hundred acres of natural bush, virgin bush, and we were within a mile, it was in those days, of where we were. There were twenty one lakes. Hmm. But you wouldn't know it just unless you look from the sky. Is that natural lakes or natural natural lakes, wow. yeah. They're just different drainways and um, swamps and lakes and things. And That's some awesome. of them are salty, some of them are fresh water depending on, you know, lower down with salt water, you know, that the, the that the freshwater lakes would drain into mm. um, depending on the seasons and how much water was available. Now, the unique thing about that is that it has a very strong indigenous presence. And the lake that was directly opposite our farmhouse, which is probably half a kilometre away facing east, there was a gully where yeah. a creek fed into that from another direction. So, you know, various creeks and things would overflow into that lake. It was fairly low down and it was salty. That gully on the right-hand side there, we used to call paperback gully. and I always wonder why there are a lot of shells um, on these little mounds along the ridges of the creek and onto the lake shore. And Later on, I realised or I was told that that's where the Aboriginal used to camp. They would camp there, they would feast there, there was fish in the lake, there was plenty of food. So it must have been quite a bountiful sort of place for them. And we would even find um, Aboriginal axes in our garden when we are digging around and so on.
0: Axes, did you say?
2: Little axes, yeah, the stone axes, yeah, wow. stone heads, yeah. Amazing. So, yeah, there was a very strong Aboriginal presence. It's actually the, the home of the Australian first chess team, effectively, uh, and which is an Aboriginal team. Went to England and beat the English. In cricket? In cricket, yes.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Wow. So I grew up there and I spent a lot of time with my brothers around those lakes, roaming in the bush, um, just out in the country, you know, on-country, so to speak. You know, you can imagine this sort of predates when agriculture became captive of the industrial chemical agricultural complex. So there's very little chemicals that were used on our farm. Perhaps there was superphosphate, but everyone thought that was a good idea at that time, The soils were phosphorus deficient. But because of the wildlife that was surrounding it, which... For us, it was just normal. So we'd see broggers, flocks of broggers fly over, flocks of swans fly over. Swans would nest in the swamp at the back of our farm. We'd see quails, we'd see eagles. We just had an abundance of wildlife. And we kids, we used to roam around and experience all this sort of firsthand. And so, you know, I can go on about that, but really what I'm saying is that we were just a small part of a bigger system that had long been at play in that landscape, in that environment. And, you know, we were there trying to eat a living out like most people on the land were and so you know you'd saw the seasons come and go, you saw the droughts, the extreme temperatures, the floods, the whole lot. So you just you had first hand experience to all of this. And it always puzzled me why, you know, when we the way we treat the environment and nature, why we see it as something separate from ourselves. And I still to this day I understand that better why people have that relationship with the environment or lack of. And that sense of separation but to me I just could never see fundamentally why that had to be the case.
0: That humans were separate to everything else. Yeah that inherently
2: we are part of the system it's a much bigger system that we can't control we know that now <laughs> we felt we could it's, there's all sorts of philosophical you know, papers and books and things being viewpoints presented on this over time but the evidence is very stark right now where we are in 2020 and when we lose that relationship with the natural environment and you know there's a huge cost so having grown up in that environment but also having seen the hardship of trying to make a living there and educate kids and so on it was never actually my intention to in fact we were discouraged from going back onto the land lots of happy memories of course but we were discouraged to do that we were told you know the emphasis for us was to go and get an education this
0: is by your parents or by society at large yeah,
2: well certainly by my parents i mean they put a high priority on education and you know they're pretty well educated to give us Worldview, if you like that, was just normal for us. You know, they, my parents used to read widely, and they had the music, and they had all sorts of things. For us, instead of paintings on the wall, we had a few of those. But we used to have world maps, and we used to have competitions as to who knew what river was in what country when, and who was, etc. So that was part of the fun around the kitchen table. But but you know, coming back to your question though, is when you realize from the earliest age that you are dependent on. All those natural systems. So our vegetables came from our vegetable garden. There was very little in the local town. I mean, it came later on. So if we wanted food, we had to grow it. We had our own meat. We had our own dairy cow. We had our own vegetables and, and fruit. And even if, if sheep and lambs, like a lamb was orphaned, we'd put the lamb in a cardboard box and put it in the bottom of the, the heating, the warming oven of the slow combustion stove while we fed it on a bottle till the lamb actually survived and was big enough to be... I'm a pet lamb and so on. So, you know, this is sort of
0: normal, right? This is classic old school farming, isn't it? It's like, you know, Charlotte's Web or any of those sort of what we now think of as romanticised farming situations. But actually, that was how you grew up.
2: Yeah, I mean, doesn't everybody do that? See, that was the view that, that we had at that, at that time, yeah. So I went off and got an education and, and I was going to go and do medicine. And then I thought, well, maybe engineering's more suitable. So I ended up doing engineering. Actually, we sold the farm in 1980. That particular farm, which is heartbreaking, you know, that was my whole world. And we moved an hour south, down towards Colrain, which is just west of Hamilton. And we'd mapped out the whole farm in terms of soil type, what could be grown where, and we'd taken aerial photographs. And we were quite diligent about, you know, protecting the land and trying to conserve what was there, and you know, really take care of it as best as we knew. And the people who bought it, I went back two years later. I drove up to the front gate and I looked up and I was just horrified by what I saw. What I saw was that forest was not there anymore. they would put a bulldozer through it, cleared the whole lot because they saw it for some sort of utilitarian value. We told them it wasn't and it was too sandy and it really had no agricultural value but had tremendous natural habitat value, which of course has a flow on effect to agriculture in a positive way. So that was all raised and I was just so stunned. I just, I was lost for words and it really, it cut me to the core and I thought, how can people how can humans be so stupid be so destructive i couldn't find words so that led me to actually with a bit of <laughs> soul searching and deep questioning and so on i thought well there's something that's pathologically wrong in the mindset of if, you know humans if we treat the land in that way as though it's just an object somewhere without feeling with that relationship to us you know in terms of people place and that sort of thing and and so i then enrolled myself in a Masters of Environmental Science at Monash. It's the second of its type in the world. The first was in Sweden and that was an awesome course. That course just opened my eyes in so many ways and the reason I did that is I actually wanted to understand a lot more why humans hold that sort of relationship or can maintain that relationship in the world and you know the impact of that and what I could do about it. That was about the time of the Franklin Dam. I found myself on the way down to the could Below franklin did the non-violent action training for three days that's where bob brown started david bellamy and a few of those other people
0: and cam walker who i interviewed i didn't know that he actually he had been down there as well and now he's a long-term activist with friends of the earth so
2: yeah okay so the Wilderness Society was born out of that, right? And I went, so I did my non-violent action training there. It turned out to be quite pivotal and, in my own career, but, and it was, it was awesome. And with that training, we went up the Gordon um, River, secreted ourselves in the bush. It was all very well coordinated. And two thirds of the people there, which is about 10,000 people, two thirds, my estimate, I think others, were not even Australians. They were foreigners who, were, who cared enough and they came to Tasmania to help save our wilderness.
0: Wow, that's amazing.
2: So yeah, we, I spent the night under a log, everybody was on a track somewhere, we all came together in the bush, then we descended on Warner's Landing. People who know a little bit about the history, that that was where you know all the action that was portrayed on television was taking place. And it was pretty full on, it was very tense, no one quite knew what was going to happen, the police were everywhere, the state was being run by Robin Gray and the Conservative Party there who... Basically, we're supposed to be accountable to the Hydroelectric Commission who wanted to build a dam. And why do they want to build a dam there? Because they'd run out of other places to build a dam. And when you, when your skill is building dams, you just go looking for more places, opportunities to build dams. So they decided they, they were going to dam essentially the Franklin River, or the Gordon below Franklin, which would destroy that whole environment, that pristine, you know, world, on a worldwide basis. It's a pristine environment. There's very few places still like it. So we were arrested by the police who said to us at the time, Look, you know, make, make it easy for yourself, we actually agree with you. We want to save this place, but we've just got to do our job, so please don't fight us. We were told we had to go to jail. We went to court at 1 o'clock in the morning. Um, we all defended ourselves, and we were told at that stage where well, we were guilty, um, that we should go to jail, but we we're lucky because the jail's already full. There's not a lot of big jails in Tasmania, so we should go home. Of course, this is about three days before the 1983 elections when Labour was swept into power on the back of the Franklin Dam. So that demonstrated me that whilst one person, and there's a link to Regen Ag here, of course, but whilst one person might have strong views about things um, that they feel connected to and may also think that, well, what difference can I make as one individual? Well, i got to tell you, when you go down to the Franklin Dam there and you saw that one person with that view we standing shoulder to shoulder with another 10,000 people, suddenly that voice became very loud, very influential, and it changed the tide of the election, and I think also political history in Australia in many respects. So we can do a great deal, you know, if we work together, if we collaborate, and if, we, if we're prepared to back our convictions and take a stand on things that we do believe in.
0: And that collective action, I think, also links to regenerative agriculture. In that, if you can get enough people doing it, you can really make a difference. Totally to our carbon situation.
2: Well, well, Ali, where we find ourselves now is you, know, you wind the clock forward to 40 years. You know, the trends have just got more and more extreme, and so what's at stake is even more and more precarious. But fortunately, more and more people are realizing this and waking up and going, "Well, it can't go on as it is. It's not sustainable." You know, there's only a finite resources, there's a finite planet, and we only have a finite amount of time if we're going to turn this around. So from an agricultural point of view, it's particularly significant because without food, you know, we don't have a future. Yeah. And without clean food, we're all going to get sick. And all the trend lines, whichever disease, particularly autoimmune diseases, which are so many, they are all pointing in a fairly horrific sort of, you know, the prognosis at the moment does not look good. And that all starts in our gut. And why does that matter? Because, well, it matters a lot, obviously, because we all prefer to be healthy and there's a huge cost for society if we're not but more importantly I think most people would like to stay healthy and we need to realize that good health comes from a healthy gut microbiome which comes from healthy food which comes from healthy soils.
0: That's definitely been a a field of knowledge that's boomed in the last say five to ten years is this understanding of our gut and and its various roles and what it needs within us
2: You can refer to a fellow called Dr. Zach Bush. Okay. He's brilliant. I find the whole area fascinating and from a region ag point of view. So when I was saying the relationship between our own well-being and our ability to outlive our parents in terms of life expectancy, which at the moment is very questionable, and it's probably the first time ever in human history that, you know, unless there's been a major pandemic or something, that humans haven't been able to do that, Uh, and it looks like they're telling us anyway, that this current generation can't expect to live as long as their parents which is scary at many levels, and you see, well, why is it the case? So if we trace those types of diseases back to our gut and back all the way up the supply chain to the food that's grown in the soil that the food is grown in and how we manage that land, it's a very direct relationship and it's overwhelming. And if you take the self-interest out of the system, which is essentially, you know, we see it all around the world, whether it's the pharmaceutical industry or agriculture or military or whatever, we're all familiar with that you know there's a lot of vested interest there who want a particular system to perpetuate but it's not necessarily in our best interest of human well-being so just focusing on the soils for a moment just like we have the microbiome in our gut there's a microbiome in the soil and the correlation between the two is very strong like it's a direct correlation how can we expect to have the nutrients in our stomach if it's not in the food and if it's and if it's not in the soil it won't be in the food so we have to look very carefully at what we what we've done with agriculture, where it's heading and what we can do to change that trend. And that's where regenerative agriculture, as it's now known as, really offers tremendous hope. Being sustainable in agriculture is not adequate, it's not sufficient, it's not going to save us, if you like. Sustaining a bad system that's broken isn't where anyone really wants to go. Um, We have to regenerate back to basics, work with nature, not fight nature.
0: So how has the regenerative agriculture movement come about?
2: Yeah, it's it's been an organic process. There's been no hierarchical structure that says, this is what we're going to do and we're going to give it this name and so on. It's really a lot of people starting to wake up and realising that, even though know, they're coming from separate disciplines, they're following parallel pathways. And then you start to group them together and realise they actually have a lot in common. So maybe whether it's people who practice organic farming or permaculture or biodynamics or simply chemical-free farming, they all share, for the most part, this desire to um, work you know, with the biological system, the organic system. Modern industrial agriculture is dominated by in, an inorganic model, which means there's no carbon in it when, when you talk about inorganic. Possibly it's not known to a lot of people that we can have inorganic fertiliser or organic fertiliser, we have inorganic nitrogen or Organic nitrogen, the same thing for phosphorus and the other key macro elements that actually are required to build healthy soils. Carbon plays a central role in there, okay? Because to be organic means you've got to have a carbon molecule and the carbon then forms the basis of a food chain, the basis of proteins and carbohydrates and so on. In the simplest way, if we look at what the so-called conventional, but conventional only in recent decades, nice 50 or 100 years, uh, conventional agriculture is done with all its promises of, Green revolutions and everything else.
0: Feeding the world, all of those things.
2: But all those sort of things, which is actually, that's a whole other story, but it was, um, it's a lot of mythology in that. And, and certainly look to see the state of our landscape at the moment is, without a doubt, in almost every instance, it's degraded from where it used to be. So something hasn't worked. And essentially what we've been inadvertently doing, or not, is um, mining our soils, extracting the value out of the soils, uh, which inherently has meant that we've lost the carbon out of our soils. And when we lose the carbon out of our soils, we lose the biology, we compromise that, we lose the ability to hold water, we actually destroy or take away the home for all the, the bugs, the microbiome to survive. And hence, soil, in many respects, is nothing more than a physical structure to hold plants in. We then give it nitrogen, then we give it all these synthetic fertilisers, which have their unintended consequences.
0: So what are the principles and goals of regenerative agriculture compared to that?
2: Well, let me say firstly, regenerative agriculture, it really arose out of people finding that they had a lot in common and it was more about let's regenerate the whole system from a biological perspective. Whether it was one discipline or another, they all had that in common. So it's it's effectively like an umbrella name that accommodates those different but complementary perspectives. So is there a, a definition of, regenerative agriculture probably isn't a precise definition but it's the philosophy and the principles behind it are all about taking care of the land building up the health of the soils looking at the whole system which is the water cycles the you know the hydrological cycles the nutrient cycles the energy cycles you know the biological cycles and having all those work as a bigger system rather than trying to separate it into single elements that we do one thing here and we, then we see an unattended result somewhere else. So working with the whole system there and ourselves in many respects not being separate but actually being a critical part of that, a humble part of that. Um, and, and the word you know, humility and humus, they actually have the same etymology or root, hmm. which itself is quite revealing in the same way that economy and, and ecology, which comes from the Greek word oikos, actually means home. So when we talk about an economy, that's management of home, and ecology means the study of home. So why do we treat those two so differently? So coming back to regen ag, it's it's really a movement that reflects the philosophy that people who are working with land, with food, with soils, um, all share. And it's really about creating an environment that maximizes the ability for that system to thrive, which includes the humans who work with it.
0: You're currently running a course that's going to go for three years helping local farmers understand and implement some of these practices and there's a great diversity of topics that come up. Can you, can you give us an example of some of the things?
2: Yeah, okay. So the way that program, which is an exciting program, and the way it's been structured was assuming that there's a diversity of knowledge of people in any, or any community, any region, farming community and so on, but not assuming that necessarily anyone knows anything So we've really started from the basics and bit by bit sort of added more and more layers to that. So, you know, we talked about climate, we talked about what regenerative agriculture is in its sort of general terms and examples of how it works and both from a systems point of view, also from a productivity point of view, because if you can't make money out of that system, it might be great, but no one's going to do it and so on. And then building on top of that, it's... That was really about setting the scene and a vision and a sort of a context for the workshops that followed in the first year of the program. We then went and started to examine plant biology, soil biology, soil health, roll up our sleeves a little bit to understand what is actually going on in the soil that leads to a healthy plant. And if it's not happening in the soil, what does that mean in terms of the plant's relationship with the soil and the ability to plant to thrive? There's books written on these things, but we're just trying to present those as complementary aspects. And then with that understanding, people start to see the soil and the plants differently. I mean, it's, it's, the learning curve is incredibly steep and it's very exciting.
0: We'll return to Dean in a few minutes but I thought it was a good moment to give you a taste of what some of the sessions are like. I went along to one earlier in the year before everything went online because of the pandemic and social distancing requirements. Here is David Hardwick talking about how plants and the soil interact. He got a volunteer from the audience to sit up the front and be a plant. As he described some of the functions and processes of a plant's life, he used different suites to represent different parts of the process. For example, minties were carbon- all of this was to help make it abundantly clear what role plants play in carbon sequestration and the thriving life of the microbes within the soil.
3: Yeah. So this plant is busy photosynthesizing and it's grabbing carbon out of the air as a key part of that. And the carbon in the air is in what form? Hopefully you've been watching the video. Carbon dioxide. <laughs> so you're fixing carbon out of the air Um, How much of this air we're breathing that this plant needs to grab, and all of these green trees are grabbing the carbon from? What percentage of the air is carbon dioxide? 0.04. Can someone put that in percentages? 0.04? 0.04%. Yeah, Yeah, so so 400 parts per million. So there's bugger ore carbon in the air, it's a trace element. Carbon dioxide in the air is a trace gas, like zinc and copper in the soil. It's a trace gas. So despite that, all the plants on earth are grabbing carbon out of the air. So here you go, So Here's minties. This is carbon for today. And your photosynthesized. <laughs> So we've got a plant that's photosynthesizing, it's pulling in carbon to create, what does it create with that? What's the red skin doing in there? It's, it's pulling in carbon to create carbohydrates, everyone happy with that? Sugars. Where does the plant put that energy? Because that's energy, it was solar energy, and now the plant's created chemical energy. Two carbons bound together is a carbohydrate, sugar, simple sugar is simple. Where does the plant put that energy, what does it do with it? Yeah, so it does put some into the soil. So this plant is putting some of that energy or the carbs down into the soil. And what's the technical name of that process where plants give out some of those sugars into the soil? You mentioned it before. Exudates. Exude. So plants exude some. But where else does the plant put some of that energy? It builds it into top growth and root system growth. So all plants on planet Earth put their energy into top growth root growth and the third place they put it into is they give some of those sugars out into the soil around them so they allocate it in those three places there is a fourth which is respiration but for the purposes of soil mainly it's top growth root growth and exudation
0: so that was david hardwick in the lunch break after his talk i caught up with some of the participants to see what they thought of it all There is a huge range of participants in this group with very different backgrounds and levels of knowledge about these things. Sue, for example, is an old hand.
4: Yeah, no, the way that he demonstrated how everything interacts within the soil was really helpful. You know, I'll remember it more easily
0: (laughs) seeing it like that. One of the things I picked up on was how the fertiliser and what we call conventional farming methods are actually not helping us store carbon in the soil, but releasing it.
4: Yeah, oh yeah, definitely. Well, that increases the respiration of the soil, which is not necessarily a good thing. (laughs) And the activity of bacteria, which are not always helping break down things. So, yeah, no, it's really, really interesting. It's great how we broke everything down into elements and made everything so logical, good step-by-step sort of process about how carbon gets into the soil and how minerals break down and get available to plants. Really excellent presentation so where do you work well i'm in i'm an arborist and a horticulturist and a landscape designer and conservation and land manager and i also have land and i've always been very interested in permaculture from way back in the early 80s so it's really nice to everything starts sort of coming together more and more it just reinforces the importance of supporting natural systems and you know getting organic matter back into the soil. It's interesting to me,
0: you've, you obviously have a pretty strong background in land management and is, was some of what he was
4: saying today new to you? No, but it just made so much really good logical sense. It sort of helps you to put everything back into their context again. Yeah, yeah, because it's easy to run off in, a, in one path, I think. It's about that interreaction and the cycling and symbiosis and everything supporting each other. Yeah, and diversity, which increases the range of nutrients and breakdowns and everything happening. It it gets the process really kicking. Yeah. Great.
0: Great. (laughs) Are you sticking around for the full course? Yes,
4: I am. What are
0: you hoping to uh, implement, how are you hoping to implement this uh, in the future?
4: Uh, Well, I, I attempt to implement these things anyway. Um, I don't know, it's just a reinforcement for me, which is, it's great.
1: My name is Isis Jordan, and I work at uh, Holy Goat in Sutton Grange, and we make organic goat's cheese. Um, And I am mostly just looking to learn more about regenerative agriculture and how you actually implement it, because I'm pretty new to it. And I really loved um, Dave's... The way that he presented his knowledge about the soil structure, I love that he used the um, people as examples of what's going on under the soil. He just was very uh, animated, he was really animated.
0: What do you think you picked up, what was the most uh, interesting part of what he was presenting that you picked up that you think you'll take with you?
1: Oh, just the way that nutrients are recycled and how everything is in a big web that's all connected and recycled and how it's ridiculous that we don't still use that natural cycle and just to know that it's still there and you can still use it and go back to it.
0: Are you going to be staying on for the long haul with the program?
1: I'd really like to. I'm really interested in it. I'm really excited by the things we're learning. So, yeah, I'd like to.
0: So that was Sue and Isis reflecting on their experiences and what they're getting from the course that is being run in the Mount Alexandershire for regenerative agriculture. And now back to Dean.
2: So Then we introduced people to the idea of holistic grazing, animals, have a very very important role play in terms of how we manage our landscapes and what is not well understood by certainly the majority of people is that grasslands didn't occur by themselves. Grasslands co-evolved with animals. So to maintain, regenerate, to build grasslands, pastures and healthy soils we actually need the livestock in there.
0: So wheat for example is a grass and so to have a successful wheat growing enterprise you in a regenerative agriculture sense, you would you would introduce animals so that they can coexist with the plants. Is that what you're saying?
2: Yeah. If you talk about wheat, the way we grow wheat today, we do it effectively as a monoculture. And, and the US is the extreme case where you've just really got three crops that dominate everything. But in Australia, what many landholders tend to do is they'll grow wheat if they need to make a living and they can do that well, but then they rotate it and they'll actually plant understories of clovers and other sorts of grasses and legumes along with that wheat so when the wheat cycle the wheat season is done with then there's something that's actually growing over the summer period and so on one of the key philosophies behind regenerative agriculture is that you want to have a living plant in the soil at all times so in australia we'll see green in the winter to springtime and then it all goes yellow so what's that yellow mean it means that all the annual grasses have actually died and there's no living plant in the soil for probably four to five months until the, the autumn rains come. So that's an annualised system. It's called. What we need to do, and this is historically how grasslands have evolved all around the world, is, is through the heavy presence of perennial grasses photosynthesized 12 months of the year. Right? They work together with the annuals, but in that sort of modern agricultural system, we have this, not only do we have a lack of photosynthesis, in those summer months because we don't have the perennials, or we, which means we don't have those grasses growing in that period of time, or that period of the year. But if you think about it, what happens to the soil during that time? Because the soil is nourished from the energy which comes from the leaves of the plants using solar energy. So if there's nothing happening from the plants because there's no photosynthesis occurring which brings the sugars back into the soil and hence feeds the biology, then the biology shuts down, goes dormant and it actually cannibalizes a lot of the sugars and the energy that's in the soil, um, like the reserve, just to survive. So my point there is that you actually, you need to have this balance of annual pastures and perennial pastures, and then you need the effect of the ruminants, the animals that have can have a profound effect in terms of building that soil health, because it's not just their dung, it's the impact of their mouths, the impact of their feet, um, <clears throat> Maintaining that balance And we've seen it on our own farm um, When we've managed the cattle Which we do in a rotational manner We've, we've seen We've got comparative studies It shows where we've mown hay In springtime And we haven't had the animals yet because We've turned into hay And right next door in the same paddock We've actually not mown hay And we've left the animals in there And you go back a year later And you'll see which one has thrived And it's not where the hay came from It's where the animals were It's remarkable So and the animals, of course, because they've got this symbiosis between the, the animals which are ruminants, such as sheep and cattle and so on, um, their gut, their, their, their gut microbiome, like that works very closely with what's going on in the soil. So there's a lot of bacteria and fungi and nutrients that come out of the animal manure. It goes into the soil and then starts to feed the soil through the activity of the bugs and the fungi and the worms and so on. It's very complex, but it's absolutely fascinating. And when you see this uh, this working, well, there's few things that actually are more rewarding yeah. to look at.
0: It's interesting too, I think, being in Australia where, uh, like all these white people arrived 200 and something years ago and s- tried to put European farming practices in on our soil. And a lot of accounts say, especially around here in central Victoria, that the soil was very fertile and and generous and it's only in with a great deal of hindsight that we can see the aboriginal people of course knew (laughs) but that we can see what damage our farming practices have done but also the amount of work that the aboriginal people put in digging for you know the murnong or the whatever else that did a similar thing to what you're talking about which is turning the soil and um adding nutrients and uh, all of the stuff, like the humans were an integral part of the life cycles of the plants here. And uh, with only a few generations of white farming practices, the soil really has degenerated a lot.
2: Yeah, yeah. And that's a good example because, I think, well, how did this change so quickly? And the evidence is there from, or even the Malort Plains and the um, Basile Plains um, in this area and further towards Western Victoria. And the diaries, be it Major Mitchell or Reverend Robinson, who was with Aboriginal protector at the time, who wrote comprehensive diaries, both in Victoria and Tasmania, um, about what they're observing then. And Major Mitchell talks about riding through these, Australian grasslands, native grasslands, and the grasses, is in summertime, and the grasses were up to his head in height while he's sitting on the back of a horse. Uh, and it had this sponginess in the grass as he walked along in the wagon wheels and so on. So they'd actually notice that. In the summertime. So how did that happen? Well, firstly, because the, the land and the soil was well hydrated. Um, it was full of perennials. So wallaby grass, kangaroo grass, and, 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 and many others, they are uh, perennial native grasses were all adapted, but they were growing. And when white man came here reporting Western, let's say, English or British agricultural practices, so God bless them, to the best of their knowledge, they said, well, we've got to plough this. Stuff. So when you start not knowing that we actually live in a very brittle system and, and not really understanding why the Aboriginals treated it differently, if they, in fact, were interested in knowing that, white man started to cultivate. And when you cultivate soil, particularly where you've got a very short growing period and then a long dry period, when you cultivate soil, you're essentially exposing that biology to the air, meaning you're exposing the organic material and the carbon the air and that carbon in the soil which is what we've all been talking about in our program and of course which is critical to good soil health and holding moisture that carbon gets exposed to the air and oxidizes and ends up with co2 in the atmosphere right and it, it leaves the soil so bit by bit by bit by bit over time our soils become degraded and lose their, their productivity value nutrient value and so on and within five ten years the european settling and farming this land it had changed irrevocably. It's it's very, very stark. Now we understand it. Bruce Pascoe writes about it. Bill Gamage writes about it in their respective books. And even the cry of a Reed warbler, Charles Massey, he writes beautifully about all this.
0: Yeah. You just described beautifully what happens when the soil is degraded and what happens to the carbon. That leads me to how regenerative agriculture and good practices can help the fight against climate change.
2: Good, good question. So let me tell you one thing in... I think the front of mind still for most Australians, and that is what happens when our climate gets hot. You know, we know that summer's are generally hot anyway, and we had to get extreme days from time to time. What we've seen in recent years is the dehydration of our soils. That soil carbon sponge, because it's effectively what it is, when we've got carbon in the soil, it's got biology in the soil, it acts as a sponge, it holds water. So every 1%, additional 1% of soil carbon, down to a foot or 30 centimetres per hectare, will hold an additional 170,000 litres of water.
0: That's amazing. Now
2: so you think about that, you know, it's the size of a, a football oval, down to one foot. So if we can lift that carbon, soil carbon, which on average is less than 1%, back to where it was in 1942 when Strezlecki, that's Polish scientist at the time, called it Dr. Christine Jones, who's one of the world's leading authorities in this area of soil biology. She's an Australian, by the way, but she recounts this story of Streslecki. So... Imagine, and we know, because we, in our program, we've measured the soil carbon on many of the participants' farms. And in most cases, it's less than 1%. There's one or two exceptions. But imagine, and we do have to do a lot of imagining, but imagine if we could return that soil carbon level to where it was, and it was 4% to 5% on a permanent basis, thousands of years, it was managed in a relatively stable manner. We know what led to that, the loss of that soil carbon, and therefore... We know what to do to actually restore it to at least that level of regenerative agriculture, bearing in mind that that loss of soil carbon and the CO2 that's now in the atmosphere is the largest contributing factor to, in terms of excess, additional or enhanced greenhouse effect that we're having to deal with on the planet. I mean, it's not fossil fuels. Fossil fuels is a major contributor, but it's not as large as the carbon, the fugitive carbon dioxide that's come from our soils through not understanding the biological systems that we're working with at the time the good news is we know what caused it and therefore we know what's required to actually reverse that whole trend and we can do that at scale there are challenges absolutely there's challenges at many levels systemic levels with our bureaucracy with the financial systems with reward structures with the various motivations the fact that people who run farms uh, like anyone else running a business they have to make a living otherwise it's not going to work regenerative agriculture actually can be and In many instances, we've got terrific examples where it's actually more productive financially than conventional agriculture on an equivalent basis. And when we started doing what we're doing, which is with the biodynamic farm, one of the educators, a fellow called Graham Hand, we went to visit him and he said since he's been doing the regenerative agriculture, he's been able to double his productivity and reduce his input costs to one eighth.
0: So he's reduced his costs and he's increased his production?
2: He's reduced his input costs to one eighth, or about 12.5% of what they previously were. Yeah. And he's doubled his productivity in that time.
0: That's incredible, isn't it?
2: So why why aren't we doing this?
0: And again in the Australian situation, I think it's so vital. We all know that water is a huge issue across the whole nation. Like we're all very aware of water on this very dry continent. And the the bushfires this summer have been linked to the length of drought that we've experienced across the southeastern states. And I think you've probably got some good examples of how much, like you were talking about how much water can be retained, but uh, there were some amazing images you showed in one of the workshops about the difference between like, how green one field is and how yellow another field is at a certain point in summer after the regenerative agriculture practices.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And just let me say that um, these fires and the climate change and so on is not because of droughts. The principal cause is not the droughts, it's the management. The management is the fundamental impediment that's leading to these sorts of outcomes. So if we don't actually know how to manage and what we call a drought, then we should be changing what we're doing or not doing it at all. Because there are people out there, regenerative agricultural farmers, who are managing their business through drought because they understand all those systems and the cycles, so they don't overstock. So you've never got this this situation where they have to go and buy hay just on a bare paddock just covered with dust blowing the topsoil away. Um, just to keep their stock there. I mean, they have principles that they follow, and I mentioned one principle before, um, and there's four other principles. One of the other principles is that you've always got to keep vegetation cover, in your soil, so never have bare soil. We also need to recognise that when water falls, as in when it rains, what matters is not how many millimetres of rain we get each year, it's how much that rain we actually hold on to. And if our soils and our pastures, not acting as a sponge to soak that water up. What happens, it runs off. It takes the topsoil with us, causes erosion, goes into the creek and out to the sea. Doesn't that sound familiar?
0: So one principle was keeping keeping green things growing?
2: Yeah, it's what we call the armour plating of it. It's have enough vegetation cover, so it allows the fungi and all the other microbiology to do its thing and keep the system healthy and protect the, the soil of the land from cementing over and getting um, compaction and so on, and allowing the moisture through. The others, you know, always keep that living root, that plant in the system. And, I mean, if you look at the 41000 initiative, which came out of the Paris COP meeting in 2015, which the French had put forth this notion that if you look at how much CO2 we have to draw out of the atmosphere to bring it back to a safe climate, we could achieve that. And this is simple mathematics and it's more about illustrating what's possible rather than religiously following everyone, following that the detail on their land. What they have shown is that we just simply have to increase the soil carbon component by 0.4% per annum across the whole world, the arable land in the whole world.
0: So that's an increasing 0.4% every year, increase it again. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So if we all are starting to embrace the practice of regenerative agriculture, then then we'll do it in a canter, to quote the Prime Minister's uh, language recently. <laughs> but the but, but people in our group, and regenerative farmers, and we measure soil carbon and so on, are doubling their soil carbon in fairly quick time. It's not a panacea for everyone. It depends on the environment. It depends on the management practices. It's not necessarily easy. But once you get your head around this, there's no going back. It's really basically saying, with the land that's under human management at one form or another, if we start to adopt these practices, which is really what the message is, then this is what's achievable. Now, so some some in Australia... We've got higher rainfall country. We've also got very dry, semi-arid, rangeland country. It's not going to be the same everywhere. But we know that we can build soil carbon ongoingly at the rate, down to depth, at the rate of 10 tonnes of CO2, up to 20 tonnes of CO2 per hectare per year. And the the Australian government methodology, which is the most rigorous in the world and it's improving all the time, that is occurring down to a metre. In instances where people uh, have been doing this long enough to have the measurements taken, so we know it's possible. Hence the value of putting a price on carbon, to be honest, because you then reward people, you incentivise people, and they'll they'll do more and they'll continue to do more.
0: Do you see any of the big, like massive-scale agricultural players adopting any of these methods anytime soon?
2: It's coming. It's coming. There's a lot of interest um, occurring, and there's people out there with big properties that are now starting to change their grazing practices to uh, manage or holistic grazing. They're increasing their productivity. They're holding on to more water. They, their, their input costs are reducing. So all the things that I've talked about, that is occurring.
0: And I guess if there's a strong evidence about uh, those, those sort of benefits to the bottom line of of the business of farming, then you will see change, really, won't
2: you? Yes. Well, absolutely. I mean, if you, if you tie it back to the hip pocket, absolutely. But you've got to remember that the agricultural space is it's high risk. There's no financial support between you know, in Australia compared to most other Western countries. So, you know, we're on our own in many respects. And so for farmers to transition from conventional to regenerative agriculture, you know, there can be a cost depending on what the farming enterprise is. You may have to change the way you provide water to your stock, the way your fencing is set up. And things like putting in cover crops, multi-species cover crops both in winter and summer are phenomenally you know, successful, productive on what we call a gross margin basis or gross margin per hectare basis so in other words you invest money to put in a cover crop and if you do it properly and and multi-species which is not just about monocultures but it's about having up to 15 20 different um, species of grasses and seeds and so on they all have an interplay between each other and you will see astonishing results and you provide stock food and close the fodder and the fodder feed gap put on weight with your animals which is largely an indicator of how successful your farm is in a sustainable way and you're improving the soil biology when we're just learning how to do that so some of our speakers in our program in our group we have trials occurring at the moment with at least five of the farms doing cover cropping trials and also holistic grazing trials and just watch this space it's going to be quite exciting.
0: So it's a three-year program. What sort of farms are involved? What, what are their various focuses? Because it's quite diverse, the group.
2: Yeah, we are we're probably quite uniquely diverse um, compared to, say, north of here where it's predominantly cropping. But here we have the mixed farming, which is livestock, sheep, cattle, some cereals, people south of Guildford and Yandoi who have big poultry operations now on part of their farm working in sort of symbiotic manner with their livestock. You've got the chickens and chooks and so on roaming the paddocks and actually providing you know, organic nitrogen and nutrients into the soil and they're pulling out a lot of the bugs and you know, things that are less not, they're not the beneficial types. So they're eating those, they're getting fat on those and they're leaving good fertiliser behind. So that's a case of where you've got large-scale chooks as well, those operations. Then you've got the specialised pork producers and pigs actually can be terrific if managed well in a regenerative context terms of soil improvement you've got the the organic goat people who produce a high quality product with their cheese and milk and so on those other products and doing terrific things there and and more importantly actually training young people as well similarly they got the mount alley down the fruit gardens doing the same sort of thing training young people with berries with orchards and so on with vegetables and then some Within, our, within the group, and we haven't necessarily seen everybody on a regular basis, but we know they're listening in, and there's vineyards, so it's a real hodgepodge, in a way, or a real wonderful diversity probably a better way to describe it. What is fascinating is to see how this is now starting in Australia, and the experiences of the group are really important for us to be able to continue to do this, and so far I think it's been very positive. We can contrast this against what parts of the U.S., have done in areas like North Dakota where the whole county of North, that Bismarck County in North Dakota pretty much is now universally regenerative agriculture. And it started in the same grassroots way as what we're doing here. You actually had government agencies and scientists and so on wanting to join that group once they started to see the success that was actually taking place. Wouldn't that be good if that occurred here? And in this post-virus world, or not, well, no, 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 we're not posted, are we? Who knows? I think it's going to sharpen people's minds around the value of local food and not just taking it, but also knowing that by, by actually purchasing local farmers and agriculturalists and so on, who are doing particularly the regen stuff, we're giving a lot back to each other as well.
0: So that's our show for today. As the last show of the season, I'd like to give a huge and very warm thank you to Eva White, who has been helping me behind the scenes the whole time. She's been an excellent research assistant, administration assistant, and she has been helping create some of the social media content as well. So thanks to Eva. I would also like to say thanks to MASG, the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, who have been very supportive of this program and and my role in the organization in collaboration with this program. And Main FM, of course, the most excellent community radio station who has been airing this show, and also 3MDR who picked up the show halfway through the season. So thanks to both of those radio stations for supporting the program. I'd also like to give a big thanks to everyone who agreed to give me time and be interviewed and trusted me <laughs> with with their life stories and their passions and their interests So I'm going to take a month off from creating new content, but on the two radio stations, Main FM and 3MDR, I'll be playing a series that I did in 2018 about Plastic Free July. And then in August, I'll be coming back with some fresh content. If I get refunded, I'll be back for another year. And if I'm not, I've still got a few interviews that I've already recorded. So I'll release those and and then I'll see what happens after the funding announcements. Thank you also And of course, most especially to everyone who's been listening, it's been a real honour to think that people out there all around the world have been listening to this program and hopefully learning some things as I have been. And I guess taking heart from the fact that even in this tiny little dot on the map that is central Victoria, there are so many people passionate and working to help our climate and our environment and to help stop climate change and... I think our our region is particularly rich in people who care about these things, but it's also really encouraging to think that all around the world there are similar communities doing exactly the same thing. So thanks for listening, thanks for your interest, and I'll talk to you again in August.
1: Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change.
0: Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Turning the Goldfields Green on saltgrass.podbean.com. My name is Alison Hanley and I have been your host today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you are interested in any of the books, articles or websites mentioned in the show, you can find links to them in the episode description at saltgrass.podbean.com. You can follow us on Facebook or subscribe to our emailing list to get reminders and updates about the show. Email us at SaltgrassPodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you if you have ideas for topics, know someone amazing we should talk to, have a recycling tip, a green product review, or have a song recommendation. Again, email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. This program was made possible with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. This program was produced in partnership with the Mount Alexander Sustainability Group, MASG, and Main FM. It should be noted that the statements and opinions of myself and the people I interview are not the official positions held by either Main FM or MASC. We welcome feedback and responses to the ideas expressed on the show. If you would like to respond to something discussed on the program, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at saltgrasspodcast at gmail.com. On another note, it's a tricky time to ask for money with so much uncertainty and many people having lost work. But both MAZG and Main FM do brilliant work in our community and could use your support if you're able to give it. Mainfm FM is going to be running their Radiothon from June 20th to 27th. And it's absolutely affordable to subscribe and get a bunch of great benefits. If you do lots of local businesses give discounts to main FM subscribers, and it helps keep this wonderful station going. You just have to go to mainfm.net, the website and click on the subscribe button. And if you fill out the form and select your favorite show, which is Saltgrass, of course, then you get to benefit from all of the things that are listed right there. And it's membership time for MASG. So, as a not for profit sustainability group, your membership means an awful lot to us. If you are able to join MASG and support MASG in all of the wonderful work it does in helping our Shire and our region become more sustainable, it would be greatly appreciated. You can go to masg.org. Dot au, and you will see a memberships tab on the website there and just follow all the steps. So if you're able, please think about supporting MAZG and Main FM.